Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this moment and for the opportunity to encounter your word. We pray now that the Holy Spirit, like on the day of Pentecost, will descend amongst us. Lord, we pray that our hearts will be pliable to your words. We ask that we will be receptive to your promptings, and we pray that each of us will leave here challenged uh, to be more like Jesus. This is our prayer. Amen. Let me start with a question this morning, and I'm going to do it this way. If the answer is yes to the first question, just keep your hand up, and then we're going to eliminate um, as we go through a few questions. If you speak more than one language, put your hand up if you speak more than one language. Now, for some reason, people start to feel uh, timid when I ask questions. We need your hand up high. If you speak more than one language, put your hand up. Okay. If you speak more than two languages, keep your hand up. Well, no, that makes no sense. It was already two if you spoke, spoke more than one, right? Okay, if you speak more than three languages, keep your hand up. Okay, we have people, we have even people in the mother's room. I see people on the balcony. Okay, if you speak more than four languages. Ooh, someone is going halfway because they're not sure if they speak more than four. Okay, more than five. If you speak more than five. Anyone? Jason, just put your hand up. Your brother told me how many you speak. I know, put your hand up. All right, so certainly we have Jason who did scripture reading. He speaks more than five. We have a gentleman here. Okay, who speaks more than six? Six languages. Okay. And this happened in the first service. Now people are pointing to the individual because they don't want to put their hand up. God bless you for your humility. But we have at least a few people here who speak more than five, maybe six, perhaps more languages. Now, you would be called a polyglot in the sense that you speak multiple languages. You'd be multilingual. Uh, sociologists have also actually created a new category of people who are hyperglots, people who can speak up to 10, 11, 12 different languages. And this morning, I'm reminded of one individual who was certainly a hyperglot, William J. James Sidis was born in the late 19th century, and this American prodigy could speak eight different languages at the age of eight years old. He spoke Latin, Greek, German, French, Hebrew, Russian, Hebrew, Turkish, and Armenian. And as he grew, he added more languages to his repertoire, and by the time he died, William James Sidis could apparently speak 40 different languages and created his own constructed uh, language called Vendergood. And so he was an incredible hyperglot who could speak many different languages. And yet I think of a child who was born who was even more remarkable than William James Sidus. This child was born perhaps in late May of AD 34 in Jerusalem with a birth that was witnessed by thousands. The record of this child was incredible. They had a very unnatural birth. And Maya Angelou's description of her mother would appropriately describe the moment of birth of this child. When she said, it was a hurricane in perfect power and the climbing fall colors of a rainbow. 
So this child born to an ecstatic father, an invisible mother, this beautiful, wondrous child spoke 18 foreign languages early in its life, adding more with each passing year. And it grew at a remarkable rate. The child's nickname was Lisa. Now, if you've ever had a child come into your world, uh, you know that when a baby is born, everything changes. Your world flips upside down. Your realities, your priorities take a hit. So all of a sudden, if you want to leave the house uh, because you have an appointment at 12, you know that prior to having a child, perhaps you would budget two minutes to put your shoes on, get a coat on, go to the car, and you're out. Once you have a child, you know that you need to budget at least an hour before you can go out. There needs to be the pre-going out uh, tantrum, then the calming down after the tantrum, then finding the coat, then you find the shoes, but then, no, we only have one sock on, and then you have to find the other sock, and then you're going to go out, but now they're too hot, so they've taken their coat off, and now you can't find the coat. You budget an hour. You kiss goodbye to ever sleeping in on a Sunday morning because what is a Sunday morning to a child other than another day to wake up at six and have fun? And so your, your world changes. And as you watch the child grow, you start to see characteristics that are attendant to that particular child. And this child that was born in Jerusalem in May of late AD 30, actually had some interesting characteristics that we're going to look at for the rest of the sermon. Our scripture reading from the book of Acts is located during the time of the spring harvest of Shavuot, seven weeks after the feast of Passover. And if you have grown up or read the book of Acts, you know that this is the time when the church has um, an event that we call Pentecost. It's 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. And at this time, the Holy Spirit comes on a group of people and brings about such a spirit of unity that it becomes an attractional force for those who are around them, and they invite people to be part of this community. And I think at this time, at this particular time, on the heels of this week, when the divisions in America seem even more sharp and acute than they ever have been, when the British government has severed itself from the rest of Europe, when internal strife in Syria is pushing hundreds of people towards the Turkish border about to precipitate another humanitarian disaster, we would be uh, not remiss in asking if humanity is fated to always be at war and always to be disconnected from one another. Can we live in harmony? Can we live in community? What does that even look like in this day and age? And what does that look like for a church community to be in community and in relationship with one another? And this morning, we want to look, as we will be journeying for the next couple of weeks, on a series around community called Together, how we might live well as a group of followers of Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to go with me to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read um, 
again, and we're going to be going through verses 41 to 47. I'll reference some of these verses. So if you have your finger there, you'll be ready. If you slide your, your phone and you, and you get that on your app, you'll be ready as I make some connections. Acts 2, 41 to 47. What you find here is that there is a group of adherents who have been following Jesus, about 120 of them. And then in a magnificent show of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 additional believers are added in one day to the 120 adherents that had already been existing. And Luke borrows a Greek word to describe this new group of people. He calls them the ecclesia. He says that this new group of people approximate what the original meaning of ecclesia would have been, a called out group of people who would have come to, to speak and to be in charge of some discussion. But he employs it to speak about this new group of people. He says, they are the called out And they come together and they fellowship daily by eating meals, by praying, by sharing resources. They are full of joy, of generosity, and their community life makes them attractive to the people around them. And there is much that we can say about this passage, but I want to focus on just one word, on one word that comes up repetitively over these next Um, over these six verses, and that is this word, together. As you read over and over the birth story of the ecclesia, of the church, you notice that these new believers cannot get enough of each other. They're like wild about each other. They love each other. They're always together. They're consistently hanging out. And frankly, I don't know about you, um, if we have any introverts in here, put your hand up. There we go. All my introverts. When I read about the beginning of the church, and if you're an introvert, this feels a little claustrophobic to you. You're like, there is no way. And it would have to be the literal Holy Spirit sent from the throne room of God on high that would make me want to spend time with people every evening in their home. Sounds exhausting. You know, you live a life where when the uh, self-checkout came, you knew that this was a gift from God for you. Because now you could go, you have your ear pods on, you come out of your car, you pick what you need, you purchase it, you don't talk to anyone, your ear pods are still in, you're still listening to the podcast or the audio book, and then when you're done, you go back to your car, then it transfers from your iPhone, from your ear pods to your in-car Bluetooth, you carry on listening, you drive home, you spoke to no one. It's beautiful. <laughs> and then you read, that when the Holy Spirit comes on this group of people, they are together all the time. And when they're together all the time, I'm assuming they're talking, you know, they are praying, they're worshiping, and they are hungry for each other. So hungry that the picture which is painted is that regular life is almost an interruption of community life. They couldn't be kept apart. They were together. And they We're not just together because they came together like we've come together this morning to worship. They were together, uh, not not just as something they did, but as something that they were. 
So this is how Luke is painting this picture, that their togetherness wasn't just an action, it was actually a characteristic of the new believers who had been filled with the Holy Spirit. They were together, and they entered into a whole new mode of existence. But here's the thing, if I was to come and finish and say, listen, because they were together, you ought to also be together, I know that you would have a million questions, and you would resist it, just like I do when I read the book of Acts. And the reason you would and I would is because you are weird. And I don't say this in a pejorative fashion, it's just the truth. You're all weird, and so am I. When I say you are weird, I mean this, you are Western, you are educated, you are industrialized, you are rich, forgot the R. You're rich and you're also democratic. So you live in a time and a place that sociologists have come up with this acronym to say you are weird. In fact, researcher uh, Ara Norizan from the University of British Columbia uh, concluded in a fascinating 2010 study that all of us who are here today who are weird, Western, industrialized, educated, rich, and democratic, are psychologically distinct to the rest of the world. We are hyper-individualistic in the way that we think. The rest of the world, which would approximate closer to what is happening during the uh, during Pentecost are much more co collectivistic in how they live their life, where we are hyper-individual. The rest of the world has family obligations and family networks that pull them together on a regular basis. We don't need it. And so we have learned how to live individual lives. We have learned how to survive by ourselves. We have learned how to make life without needing deep, consistent community. But this new group of Jesus followers were together. And you might say, yeah, that was easy for them. The Holy Spirit came on them. Of course, they're going to be together, right? You know, they didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Netflix. What else could they do but come together and talk? It must have been fun. No, they had no business being together. When you read this passage, you will see they don't have a common culture, they do not have common personalities, common temperaments, no they don't have a common class, and yet they are together every evening in each other's homes. And this is challenging for me, because we read the Bible, and the Bible reads us, and then we have to respond to the Bible. So if this is what it looks like for a group of believers to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, to be together, even going against the grain of our social upbringing as hyper-individualistic, weird Westerners, how do we deal with this text? Is there an out? Because right now in America, we may have suspected that we are a divided nation, but we know it for sure. We are divided in America by race, by class, by politics, by ideology, by economics, by income, by location, by faith, by sex. We are divided. And the division is not just out there. It's not just the talking heads. It's not just what you listen to on the evening news. We are divided even here, it creeps into our midst. And I think going to look at the birth of the ecclesia 
and seeing what happened there will challenge us over the, these next few weeks to look at what community life has looked like and what it might look like in Walla Walla. And so, as I think about this week and the fact that increasingly we don't have a common grammar or common talk, we don't agree on what is fake and what is true, we don't agree on what is just and what is unjust, how do we establish united community? Before we try to explore this question, I want to remind you that Acts chapter 2 is taking place in the stream of Pentecost, and there are people coming from all over the world. Acts chapter 2 verse 5 tells us that, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So where were they from? Everywhere, every nation under heaven. So this is an incredible diversity of people who are present at the birth of the church. It says there are both Jews and Gentiles. There are Parthians, there are Egyptians, there are Libyans, there are Arabs, Cretans, and Romans in the crowd. They have no business being together. If someone had said to them, you know, you now need to be in community, they could have been like, but you know what? I grew up and my parents told me about, you know, Egyptians. I was always warned about dating Romans. I was told never even to eat in the house of someone who was not just like me. And yet all of these divisions collapse away and they come and they create this new Jesus community. Kenneth Scott uh, Latourette, former Yale Divinity School professor, commenting on the unlikely success of this group of people in the Roman Empire, says more than any of the other competitor religions, it, talking about Christianity, attracted all races and classes. The pagan deities, for example, were often tied and confined to certain regions and nations. And then he continues, Christianity, however, gloried in its, in its appeal to the Jew, to the Gentile, to the African, and to the barbarian. I mean, even there we see that Christianity comes in and it shakes the places where we are most comfortable if we are going to be in community. He also continues and says that the philosophers of Greece and Rome, on the other hand, appealed only to those who were educated and they could never be in community across cross-educational lines. And as I read this, I thought, wow, I mean, we have here a few things that happen in this particular community in uh, the Northwest. We have a glut of people who are educated. Probably in this room, there may be more degrees and education than you can find in some cities in the world. We are an educated group of people, and we thank Adventist education that if you enter into Adventist education for many years, you would then uh, become the harbinger of a more educated, more wealthy, more prosperous lineage because you'd gone to an Adventist school. So we're educated. And yet, as I read what happens here and I see the cross-educational um, community that happens, I think there is a challenge even here for us. Because when Christianity comes, it brings those who have PhDs and those who have GEDs together. It brings those who have multiple degrees and those who struggled to finish high school together. 
It brings people who can speak multiple languages and those who can speak one language together. And the reality is, if we don't allow the text to challenge us, we can become incredibly satisfied and comfortable being with only other educated people and being unable to speak to those who we deem uneducated. And the distinction can be sharp in the location in which we are. And yet when we look at the New Testament, we see Paul who was a brilliant, incredible mind who would spend his time writing letters to the uneducated, pouring over in prayer for those who were slaves. He was a bright mind, but because of the gospel, was able to bring and bridge the two things together. Additionally, Christianity was not just for those who were educated and those who were uneducated. Christianity appealed to both men and to women. During that time, there were many uh, religions that were exclusively for men. You had to be a man to be part of the religious order. Christianity arises, and in community, they say no. It's not just men, but it's also women. And they are equal, and they are both valued, and they are both in leadership together. And so Christianity comes in and pushes against the Roman notion that some things were only for men. And finally, the mystery religions that Christianity grew up in the midst of were mainly for those who were rich. Because you had to be initiated into some of the religions, and it was expensive. And so the only way you could be part of the group is if you had the money or the status. Now, of course, this doesn't happen here. I mean, you don't have to be initiated uh, when no one looks at your W-2 to see if you can be in church. But I have been in places, and perhaps some of you have been as well, where you've gone and you have driven into the car park and you've realized, man, you know, I don't know if we could be welcome here. I, I don't know if, if this is a place for us. Or you have felt shame because of the lack of economic strength that your family may be going through. And this text challenges us that when the Holy Spirit comes, people come together and that there is a place for you, even if you have minus balance and you are on EBT, or whether you are the kind of person who can live just off the interest that you have in your checking. They come together. And it's not easy. But they come together because they believed that Jesus Christ was not simply a teacher who showed the way for salvation, but he was the son of God who accomplished salvation. Meaning that members of both sexes and all races, the learned and the unlearned, the high and the low, the able and the non-able could come together and share salvation that was made possible through the risen Christ. And the reality is, that if we are ever to approximate what this looked like, we will have to grapple with the places where we are. We're going to have to grapple with our comfort whenever we come to the Bible. And this happens to me often. And I think it's, it's one of those things that as you read the Bible and you find the Bible reading you, there are some times when it just feels uncomfortable. 
Because you think, wait, are you asking me to do what I think you're asking me to do? Because I'm very happy right now. You know, I have my group of friends. I have the people I hang out with. You know, you, you basically have taken on the ethos of the poet and the philosopher Drake when you say no new friends, I'm good. I don't need new people in my life. I have all the people I need. And then you read the Bible and it says they are together. In fact, let's go to Acts 2.42. It says that when they were together, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So they come together in worship and in community. They are learning, they are loving, and they are worshiping. And what is interesting to me here, friends, is this word, and I think to me it's the operative word here, is that they devoted themselves to all of these things. Now, it's one thing to become devoted if you're going to learn how to play the violin, right? You have to be devoted to it. When you first start, I don't play any instruments. Forgive me if I'm ignorant, but I've heard a few people who start the violin. It sounds like a drowning cat, right? When you first start, terrible, terrible. You, you, you cannot make that thing in your hand sound good. It's awful. But then you devote yourself, you practice, or you fight with your parents who say you have to practice, and then you do it begrudgingly, and then you start to like it, and then it starts to actually make music, not just screech and make your ears bleed. And then one day you're here and you're playing incredible music and our souls are soaring, but you are devoted to it, right? And for those of you who think, I'm gonna come to Walla Walla, come to the incredible music program that is here, I want to do this full time, then you're gonna practice four hours, five hours a day if you want to then get into a symphony. You become devoted to the instrument, right? But how do you become devoted to fellowship? What does that even mean to become devoted to fellowship, to being together? And I think it could mean many things, but this is what I think it means. I think it means that even in this moment where heaven has been rent open and the Holy Spirit has come down on a group of people, that even at this point, community and being together is so difficult that they still need to be devoted to it. They still need to work at it so they can be together. It doesn't come easily. And so as we're speaking these next few weeks about being together, being devoted, know that it does not come easily. Right now, there are people sitting here. There's a student who is sitting here and, and you look at someone and they're old enough to be your parent and you just don't quite know how to deal with boomers. And you're like, I don't know. So you just sit down, you know, they try and say hello to you at the door. You're like, ah, scary, you know. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm just going to go in. And then there are boomers who are looking at millennials. And you're like, I just don't understand these kids. When I went to church, we did this and this and this. And now they come and this happens. I don't get it. And so there, there's this void which starts to open up because we think, well, if we're all Adventists and we're all coming to the university church, we should be able to just get along. We should be able to just be in community. No, you need to be devoted to it. You need to work at it. 
So when you speak to the student, you go, hey, happy Sabbath, and they look at you and they give you monosyllabic grunts, or they give you just a raise of one eyebrow, and you don't know what that means. Don't give up, my friends. Don't despair. (laughs) It's just how they communicate sometimes. They're tired. It's been a long week. You know, I don't want to come and have to talk too much. And students, you know, when, the, when adults come up to you and they ask you questions and they want to know how things are going and they make the cardinal sin of maybe asking you what your major is and you're sent into a vortex of existential crisis because you're like, I don't know. I changed it three weeks ago for the fifth time. Don't ask me. It's, they love you. They just want to get to know you. You have to work at it. We have to have grace for each other if we're going to be in community, if we're going to be devoted to each other. We have to, or it's never going to work. We're going to come here, sit in the same spot, talk to the same people, leave when it's done, and we will have no new friends, and we will not be in community. And then we'll have new people who come and who will bump up against established groups, and they won't find any way to be included. And the only way this can be broken down is if we have grace for one another and we are devoted to it. Acts 2.42 also says that there was worship and they came together with the breaking of bread and, and this has a definite article, so it's not just a meal, it's the meal, communion. So they are loving, they are uh, worshiping, and they are together in all things. And when they break the bread, they remember the one who died for them. And so they learn love and worship, and they did that in small groups. They did that in large groups. They did it in homes. They did it at the temple. They were in community. And I've noticed, even as I'm going to make a challenge for us as a um, community this morning, that there have been times, even this week, where this community, which is a special community, and, and no that when I came into this community, I learned from a lot of people. They're like, this community is special. You better watch out, because once you come in here, it's like the Bermuda Triangle. You will never leave. This place is so great. People just come. They think, oh, you know what? Let me just stay for a year after graduation. They're like, I'm here 45 years later. You know, Walla Walla is amazing. The community is great. And it's true. And even amongst us, I see Um, the seedlings that are coming from the university that we partner with. And I think about the Center for Humanitarian Engagement, who had students out in the community as a group serving during the flood. To think about our new principal at the high school, who had the foresight and the vision to say, something is happening, and what we're going to do as a community is we're going to um, value those who are in distress and see this as a teaching opportunity and essentially shut the school down so they could go and sandbag for those who are in the flood zone. There are beautiful things that are happening amongst this community. And yet, there is more that we can do. Community is difficult. One more word which struck me. When I was reading the end of it, verse 47, I noticed that uh, Luke, who's the writer of Acts, tells us that the church grew and that God added to their number daily. And I thought to myself, there's a word we use for when church grows and numbers are added. What's that word? What's the word? Oh, evangelism, right? (laughs) And I'm like, wait, hold on. So you're telling me 
That community is so powerful that when people are loving each other, when people care for each other, when people know each other's names, when people, regardless of racial, ethnic, political, intergenerational differences, ideological differences, economic differences, love each other in a radical way, it attracts people. Are you kidding me? Wait, are you telling me that this was the main evangelistic method of the early church, that they were in community, loving each other, and people said, whatever you have, I need some of it. And they came. And I thought to myself, mercy, you might hear the word evangelism more often from this pulpit. And that might mean that you need to bake a casserole and you need to go and see your neighbor who you haven't seen for a few days. That might mean that you need to go and see the person who you know has gone through an excruciating divorce and feels cut off from the rest of the community and you've been thinking about calling them but you just haven't got around to it. Call them. That might mean that the person who eats too many meals alone because they are widows and they have no one to be with them, that you go and you take an afternoon and you sit with them. That might mean that you you call those who you know are not part of the together, who would listen to this sermon and go, yeah, 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 sounds good, but you know the last time someone actually spoke to me or called me. And this isn't to guilt trip anyone. We've all done it. Life happens, you get busy, but as we think specifically about community this week, I want to challenge you. Starting actually from today, Pastor Troy reminded me, we have an incredible opportunity for those who live here in the valley. If there's someone you've been meaning to reach out to, someone perhaps who's a church member who hasn't come, call them and say, hey, did you know that at 4 p.m. there's going to be an incredible concert? Let me pick you up. Let's go. Afterwards, we're going to go and uh, we're going to go to, uh... oh, who's from Walla Walla here? Um, yes, she knew Iceberg, see? <laughs> We're going to go to Iceberg after the concert. Hey, let, let me pick you up. There's a, there's a carnival happening at Rogers. Let's go together. And you're going to start with one person this week. You're going to think of that individual that you've been meaning to call to check in on, and you're going to be the church for them. You're going to go so that you can invite them to come in and be with you together. And everybody in this room is going to struggle to do it. But when we come this week and we remember the one who was broken for us, I pray that we will find the brokenness of our human relationships becoming whole. When we come and we find our privacy has been shaken and we just don't want to be bothered, um, that we will come and we will give it to God and we will ask him to take what we are struggling with so we can be in better um, community, whether it's racial or class or political or economic, that we can practice for the next few weeks and then indefinitely how to be a stronger, warmer, more loving community that will pull in people to the glory of the risen Christ. Amen.